You're listening to Talks from the Apostolic Joanite Church. Moving into what you could probably call con- constructivism, um, where knowledge is constructed into individual conclusions about ill-structured problems. So not only is knowledge uncertain for these folks, they recognize that Problems can't be, there are, the most significant problems cannot be stated in a way that allows for a certain conclusion, for a positive certain conclusion. Um, but the important thing here is that we're taking information from a variety of sources um, and we have interpretations based on evaluation of evidence across contexts. So we've got multiple contexts bearing on the same problem, which is what we're trying to do here and on the evaluated opinion of uh, uh, reputable others. So uh, what Will was referring to there, you know, my experience counts for something. And if if your conception of knowledge doesn't value experience, then we're very much talking different languages here. We're not where there's there's something something deeper to be sorted out. And so another way of maybe putting, would it be <coughs> correct to say that ill-structured problems, it's like, it's about the questions we formulate. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have the capacity to really formulate questions that may be able to unpack a whole lot of other complexity, we're going to be really going down the wrong... Yeah. No, it's worse than that. Oh, it's really? that if we're looking at a situation which is at all interesting, I mean, I'll go back to... Uh, executive coaching. If you've got a complex organization, um, there is no good answer to the question, what do we do next? (laughs) Because it's always going to be a trade-off among five or ten, at least five or ten different factors. So it's always an evaluative um, Mm. process to end up with a step. What do we do do next in a therapeutic situation? Mm. I don't know, but this is the way we're going to move forward and and Mm. see what happens. Mm. Because the the, the, the context evolves as we work in it. Hegel, the concept, the, the thing, con, the thing evolves as we as we work in it and mm-hmm. changes, and other things become possible and exposed. Mm-hmm. So the final stage is really interesting, and the the difference between these two is is quite is is quite subtle, um, and it's it's quite a radical change. So for stage seven. Knowledge is the probabilistic outcome of a process of reasonable inquiry. Okay, so we've moved from investigation to a meta view of the process of inquiry. So we evaluate knowledge not in terms of what we know and how well it fits the evidence, but in terms of the process of inquiry that has happened in order to uh, from which this assertion or this construction of reality emerges. Right? So a lousy, a lousy process is not going to give rise to usable knowledge. It may be very attractive, but if the process is shot, if, if, we're not, uh, if the process is shot, then we get crap out of it. You get garbage out of a garbage truck. You know, nice. What you put into it. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> Um, and then we get into the evaluation, and the evaluation, is, again, is in terms of those re- meta 
uh, meta characteristics. How reasonable is the process by which these things are, 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 are emerging, by, by which these assertions are emerging? I have one, and it, I'm not sure how significant this discomfort is. Um, I worry about, I, I, saw, saw, I saw it leading in this direction, and this mm -hmm. stage seven confirms this, that this is very scientistic. This is the, the model of scientific inquiry is being taken as a given for the search for truth. And I, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. Well, it, well it, would, it would be interesting, it'd be interesting to see if, if that's how it happened or if this, how this emerged out of the other thing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you can go to, you can, what we have there is a process of reasonable inquiry. Now, if you follow Wilbur's thinking, then what constitutes a process of reasonable inquiry differs from methodology and from knowledge domain to knowledge domain, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, Wilbur himself is uh, radically empirical, but he allows the definition of what is empirical to emerge from each domain of investigation. So, yes, I mean, this sounds very much like science. Mm -hmm. um, however, it also... It also sounds like um, stuff that we're familiar with in the development of the practices in Zen or Tibetan Buddhism, right? Mm. So, how does, is this thing working? Does it hang together? Um, but wouldn't a broader conceptualization of the term science be inquiry into? Yeah, my pro my problem is that I, I think we can, for our purposes, we can broaden the term science, and I think that that's all to the good. Uh, what worries me about this, and like I said, I'm not sure mm. how significant this worry is, mm. um, is that this is this is a method. This is a very specifically scientific methodology that we we uh, we conduct an inquiry, uh, we construct a solution, we evaluate it in terms of reasonable or probable evidence, and we reevaluate it when there is new evidence, perspective, or or tools of inquiry available. Mm -hmm. That's the scientific method. Mm. And to reduce all knowledge to that, mm. I think runs, I, there's, a, there's at least a risk there. Mm. I don't know how dangerous that risk is. Mm. Do, you, do you have an off-the-cuff example of a kind of knowledge that that's, makes that problematic? Uh, initiatory knowledge. Uh-huh. Where, so for example, you know, I'm, and just to take something very, very simple, I'm going to become a, a member of a fraternity. Right. I can, you know, learn about the history, I can learn about the, the rules, I can learn about the structure, and all of those things are very, very important and are, are subject to this kind of inquiry. But ultimately what, the kind of knowledge that makes me a member of that, of that fraternity mm -hmm. is an experiential one. Right. That is not subject to evidentiary questioning. It is not a truth that it, it is a truth that is the essential unfolding of a phenomenon, rather than a relationship between a phenomenon and a benchmark mm -hmm. against which it's going to be measured. So, um, so oh. the subjectivity that you're talking about that can't be uh, subjected to these modes of inquiry. Yeah, I don't. I don't see. Well, no, my I, first worry is that I'm not sure there's a subjectivity there. Yeah. No, I think yeah, yeah. I think I think this really is very specific about 
public knowledge. Mm -hmm. What can we say we know? Okay. Uh, that that yeah. may that may help me say okay this this worry is not as significant as I think right. it is. Yeah. Because I I think maybe part of what you you've just said there is have they come to this by really uh, uh, analyzing the way that people describe how they understand something. Yes, so in the that way is that Kohlberg, they, yes. you know, asks a certain set yeah, of yeah, questions, yeah, this is, and so parsing their mm -hmm. answers would be one way of breaking it down into these stages. Mm -hmm. But. But yeah. those answers are always post hoc rationalizations. Yes, my, is my concern there. And, and it's be, and it, and they're being interpreted by scientists. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I th I think your yeah. example is is really interesting because yeah. you've got, you know, there are a couple of there are a couple of dimensions there. You've got the initiates, subjective knowledge, then you have the fraternities, agreement mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. They believe that the initiate has has that subjective experience. They can't know that. Can't know it. Right. Yeah. But and then the agreement between them that that their agreement that the initiate has had that experience is sufficient to accept the initiate as the member. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not the initiate's knowledge that makes them qualify for membership. It's the belief of the group that. That they possess that knowledge. That they possess yeah. that knowledge. Yeah. Based on that they've gone through that experience. Based on their individual experiences and whatever it is. Right. Exactly. Based, based exactly. On, on, on common and rare aesthetic experiences, to, yes. to quote Nietzsche. Mm. Yeah. There, which is uh, this wonderful turn of phrase, which is a common and rare aesthetic experiences. Yes. And so I think when we're talking about aesthetic knowledge, and, uh, you know, I mean, this is, you know, uh, Tim takes a piss out of me for this. He's, uh, oh, you know, he says, well, of course you say that. You're a continental philosopher, That's it. And, and, and he's not wrong. And there is a kind of allergy uh, that sort of built into the way that I was trained and the kind of work that I that I do, that that just sort of immediately, uh, you know, responds to this. Mm. And so that's why I'm I, I worry about how much of my discomfiture is just. A discomfiture with a linguistic structure that mm. that I've seen before, but I think putting it into the into the public. popular or the political or the public sphere mm. makes a big difference mm. because then it becomes less a question of knowledge and more a question of testimony. Mm. It becomes a way a, a way that we share knowledge. Yes, yes. and that yes. I think which is, is the key concern of science. Which is the key concern? Which is the rightly the key concern of, uh, of science, and so and rightly not the key concern of fraternal organizations. Exactly. So that's no, no, because the sharing just—it's only that the sharing stays within that organization, yeah. right? Yeah, I'm so, yeah. making a joke. I know. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's um. So so I think putting it into that sphere solves sort of ninety percent of those problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. So thank you. Okay. So, welcome back, everybody. We're going to go. We're moving from theory to the awful area, the awful, messy area of reality. So, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about um, four different ways of looking at people's behavior, and particularly people's behavior around spirituality. And, uh, you know, as, I, as Stuart and I were saying here, if if you're if you're going to help somebody uh, and help somebody grow in their spirituality, uh, 
then it, it it's really useful to have a picture of well, this, these four frameworks, which give you different perspectives on which to look at the person, and then to come up with some idea of where, which of these frameworks is the most useful for this particular person. Right? Is this a developmental thing? Is it purely something that can be addressed in the terms of the spiritual tradition that, I'm, that, I, that we're working in? Um, is it perhaps appropriately used with uh, or addressed with um, minor psychological interventions or are we looking at really serious stuff here which uh, for the person's own safety and the safety of the people around them may need medical intervention what we, what we call now medical intervention so this last bit is to try and give us some idea of how to differentiate between them. But Elliot Ingersoll's questionnaire sounds like it would be a really useful thing to do, a uh, thing to use, um, if you can get the person to sit still for a questionnaire, of course, which in itself can be problematic. So let's talk about what to look for in folks if we want to try and differentiate developmental, spiritual, psychological, psychopathic, um, or sorry, pathological um, aspects of behavior. Well, <coughs> the number one thing to look for is the amount of emotional investment uh, that the person has in, and I put being spiritual here, it could be anything. Um, it could be being spiritual as a whole, it could be being a member of uh, your church, it could be particular practices, it could be anything, anything that we've talked about here, right? So how emotionally invested are they in it? Um, can, you see, can you see tension in them physically? Can you see anxiety or are they looking for acidity I have up there? <coughs> are they looking for the ultimate theater in which they can surrender, for example? Um, and we look, you know, we're, we're judging this through voice, attitude, posture, uh, and what they say, what they're prepared to hear, what they're not prepared to hear, and um, a hundred other things like that, right? So how much, how... How frantic are they about it? You know, and how disappointed would they be not to be part of the church? Would they? And all sorts of things. Getting more specific. Specific. Say it again. I'm just thinking of specific people, and it's just you know, sort of sending me into a spin. You know, right. and I've I've got a parishioner who for whom, you know, being a member of the AJC is. I mean, she's begun to structure her whole her whole identity around that, and yeah, very much so. And it's mm. it's a little disconcerting. Mm. So. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. That's. Yeah. I was going to crack off. It's about time somebody other than me did that. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> huh? Maybe we can have a chat later. <laughs> um, do they regard you, the tradition, the literature, as human products, or do they regard them as perfect? Now, I've put that in there, and I don't know how you guys regard your, your literature, but um, 
There you go. Well, Sean, you've, you've, you've got, I think, the perfect answer to <coughs> the question, do you take the scripture literally or figuratively, we take it seriously. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which I shamelessly stole from somebody who shamelessly stole, stole it from, from somebody, somebody else, else, I'm sure. <laughs> Excellent. Um, a, real, a real teller is what comes first for this person? Humane treatment of the people around them and themselves um, or the purity of the practice or the person? Right, so... Sorry, Sean. How hard are they driving themselves? <laughs> you know, how hard are they driving themselves? Um, again, you know, it comes down to the emotion that's, that's in there behind this stuff. How do they regard those aliens outside the church? Right? So is... <laughs> how do they regard the subhuman monsters who don't belong to the church? Um, are they compassionate towards them? <laughs> <laughs> All that good stuff. We only eat them on Fridays. Excellent. <laughs> um, um, and, and how do they regard their own personal failings? Even uh, we're not talking necessarily failings as defined uh, spiritually, but personal failings. Can they own them, right? Um, or do they deny them? Are they catastrophes for the person and signs of deep unworthiness you know we're back to our we're back to our narcissism our inver inverted narcissism there and I've got vice versa uh, of course there so how do they regard their successes are they triumphs of the spirit and, or do they have what uh, Stephen Batchelor calls um, Overall, a measure of ironic self-regard. So it's a complex way of saying they don't take themselves seriously. So, and they are a secular Buddhist. Yeah, not taking oneself seriously. Understanding that failure happens. Understanding that success is temporary and always partial. Um, how threatening would those ideas be to these to, to particular people or to ourselves? So yes, I've been saying this, uh, <coughs> phrasing these as being about them, those plebs out there. Um, it's really useful to apply this to ourselves as well. It's uh, it's another another dimension of uh, working with shadow. To try and take a an unsentimental and sometimes unsympathetic look at ourselves. It's uh, <coughs> good for the soul. Okay, so that's basically around what we're looking for. We're looking for intensity of emotion, um, disregard of other people, um, or disregard of other beings in general, um, and over-idealization. Okay, so if we've got ourselves reasonably convinced that we're looking at somebody who is doesn't have a huge um, psychological investment in this, but they're, they're in a, a developmental stage and they're in that conflict 
that you talked about the conflict between the stages, Tim, as people move between the stages. Mm -hmm. If they're in that that um, no man's land as they move, as they're dropping one idea of what faith is, dropping one idea of what knowledge is, and things are becoming very unclear for them, or if they're too stuck in a in a in a phase <coughs> with a certain set of ideas, development is enhanced by questioning rather than telling. You cannot whip a person to develop spiritually, cognitively, or anything else. You, you can All you can do is invite them through questioning to look at their current position, look at their current beliefs, and begin to see the contradictions or inadequacies that are, that are within them. Um, and oddly enough, I've, I've just, in the last two or three years, come across uh, some people who have taken Hegel's dialectics and more and put them into reasonable, a reasonably formal uh, structure, if that isn't a contradiction in terms. And um, <coughs> you know, the, the use of dialectical thinking can be very powerful in showing a person what it is they're shutting out in their models. What are they ignoring, right? Or what does their way of thinking implicitly ignore? And what happens when what happens when we bring this into what we're thinking about? <coughs> okay. Now, so we look at spiritual materialism and in a way, I like thinking about that, you may disagree, um, as sort of another facet of development. And I, frankly, I see all spiritual development very much uh, related to this, that if we, if we are in a spiritual bind, it's often because we've drawn a picture and without intending to and without knowing about it, we've left important chunks out and that we need to find or we need to be helped to find a way to see these chunks um, and then, you know, through dialogue uh, and reading is a form of dialogue, um, through dialogue finding a way of incorporating this neglected aspect of life, these neglected aspects of life into our <coughs> into our picture. And that's that sort of develop that's developmental spiritual. Um, and hopefully this is what we're all very good at. So these are the relatively, I think development is working with people and helping them develop, and part of coaching is that, is, is great fun. Um, it, it's wonderful because it, it, it's an adventure for both of you because when you're helping somebody do that, you will learn about ways of seeing the world and ways of not seeing the world, which will teach you about the ways in which you fail to see the world, uh, the mistakes that you make. And it's just great fun, and it, it's wonderful to share that with somebody. Uh, it's true of all teaching, but it's quite beautiful. So, 
we move on to what I, I like to call uh, BDB, I think we'll call that, this uh, benignly delusional bypassing, right, in which the person is making slightly neurotic usage of um, spiritual ideas and practices, um, but they're not desperately, they're not attached to it with any desperation. It's just a, it's almost developmental, but not quite, sort of on the borderline. And again, what we can do there is teach, question, and perhaps challenge as well. You know, again, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, how, does, how does this work? What about, for example, a silly attachment? Um, it's it's, it's a, a fun teaching to say, well, if you felt this way about a car, what would you be, what would you think of yourself? Right? And so what's the difference between a car and um, being able to, in my terms, meditate for three hours? You know, it's <clears throat> Mild neurotic attachment. Now we're moving into uh, an area where the person has and we would judge this through the amount of anxiety or emotional arousal that the person has around this, but the, we're moving into an area where you're thinking that the person may experience some uh, psychic pain as they, as they, if they had to give up this thing which they're interested in, which they're, which they're holding on to. And a symptom there is that you're going to be a bit uncomfortable talking to the person about this. You're going to feel worried about it because you will feel their tension. Uh, and this isn't spooky stuff. This is, <coughs> this is science. It happens all the time. And it happens in therapy all the time. Yep. And it happens in relationships. You know, when you're approaching your partner to talk about something which you know is going to cause them uh, problems, you've developed that knowledge and we won't talk about what knowledge is here, but you've developed that knowledge by seeing the way they react to things. There is tension in the way they react to it. So, the question here then is, well, you know, how mild is it? How deeply attached is this for the uh, parishioner or congregant? So, basically, you're, you're, the, the, the basic technique is to explore with this person what... What does that mean to you? You know, what uh, what does it mean to you? And maybe ask the question: What would it mean not to have it? Uh, but that's a judgment call because asking that question may really upset them. Okay, it may do, and you have there's there are no rules here. You've got to judge it as you go along by looking at the level of arousal that is, is happening in the conversation with this person. I imagine that that could be experienced as a kind of veiled threat. Absolutely, but, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah it, it really has to be done skillfully and, and sensitively, and there are no rules. You know, you, it will happen. You'll have to make it up as you go as appropriate for the person you're doing it with. Because and that's back to what I was saying in terms of the carer and the development of the carer themselves, you mm -hmm. know, because... You know, what I do now is very different to what I did five years ago and ten years ago and twenty years ago. So... Yeah. And also, you know, this is where your own shadow um, can really 
can really contribute to the mess, right? So if you have deep unease around the same or related areas that this person is attached to, if you're not aware of your shadow, you can contribute to the mess. I won't, you, know, you can make it worse, you can miss it entirely. So you can collude. Collude with them, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, have them almost accelerate or magnify their behavior. So getting to know yourself is extremely important for skillful dealing with, with other people. We go back to what I said earlier, other people are the hardest thing in the world. Nothing's harder than another human being. Um, and the only way to make it easier is to get to know this foreigner in here really well. Yeah. Um, so if you find that you're, if you think you're out of your depth with, with, our, with this friend, with this person, then you need to find a way of addressing the issue as to whether you're going to recommend that they seek professional help or not. Um, and there we, you know, there we come into the things of, do you know a helpful and sympathetic list of therapists? We'll come in more of that in the in the final slide. Have you got any good suggestions? Because getting a getting a <coughs> sympathetic therapist isn't the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> it is when you're. I guess it is when you've done a therapy degree and you've met other therapists in the degree. But for folks outside the professions. Um, well, you know, there there are very often uh, directory organisations. There are two now here in Australia. And going through there, you can get a rough idea of the interests of the particular, particular therapists. And many of them do say that they are spiritual friendly, right? Mm. Um, mm. And I think that's even more true in the States, and I'd be astonished if it wasn't true in Canada, right? But, uh, yeah, I know particularly in Canada there's a directory a therapist that uh, one of my friends, Clinton, was in combat with a guy who developed that. So, yes. and yeah, directories like that. Mm. I think another another great resource is other more established mainline churches. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Go, go and talk to your local Anglican pastor and yeah. say, yeah. "Who do you send people to?" And yeah. Yeah. here's my list. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah. And there are uh, therapeutic uh, professional organizations. I mean, Vivian, Vivian is a member of ACAP, right? Mm. Australian CAPA. Yep. I always get, get that. Because there is an ACAP. <laughs> never mind. And I'm, yeah. I'm a member I of the. I teach ACAP and I'm a member of CAPA. I've been doing it for years. Um, and I'm a member of the Australian Association of Buddhist Counselors and Psychotherapists, right? So, by definition, all of us are um, spiritually literate. Yeah. Um, some are more. Buddhist line than others, but um, so all of those are perhaps useful. I guess also if you know if you've got a therapist you've seen yourself, they might that might be a good person to call. Yeah. Sure, maybe they could recommend, recommend someone sure. as well. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. These are the people that were driving me crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sending them your way. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Take them off my hands. For okay. Just, yeah. I, I'd just like to raise a question while we're on the topic, and this is for the the church hierarchy is. I don't see how we can separate um, pastoral skills and spiritual guidance from some, some basic counselling. That's 
That's and I'm wondering, we don't. <laughs> well, what uh, what obligation then does the church have for training its clergy in basic right. counselling skills? Well, this is <laughs> the. I mean, we have a we have. I mean, we have distinctions and 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 policies and procedures for specifically what what constitutes spiritual direction and spiritual counselling versus <coughs> something that might be medical or psychotherapy, and that you know we clearly establish. Uh, very clearly, you know, like signing forms, establish with uh, you know our clergy where one ends and and the other begins, and what to do if it is incredibly blurry. Because probably one of the best skills you can develop as a priest is to say, "I'm not the help you need," right. and uh, but I will wa I will walk you with you. I will travel with you exactly. while you get it. Yeah. And you know, kind of uh, like uh, one of our guys, uh, Monsignor Jordan Stratford, described a good priest as being a uh, uh, Sherpa. You know, I mean, you still have to walk the distance to the top yourself, but, you know, we can help you carry your shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. um, we do also train our seminarians in this. I mean, there, there is, a, there is a, a course that they do yeah, that, to, that deals with this specifically. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and we've had, uh, you know, we've had in, in previous, uh, in previous conclaves, and we're actually looking to make some of that available uh, only the authors decide to rewrite it for, for legal reasons. Like I mentioned over lunch, my assistant, uh, uh, Lance, has been a nurse for 20 years, and so he, he did a couple-hour session on, mm. you know, concretely recognizing the difference between uh, psychological crisis and spiritual crisis, mm. you know, what, what, to do, what to do on the fly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you, how do you handle that when it's beating down your door? So, you know, we try to do that. And, of course, you know, we're a small church with not a so ton of, ton of resources. resources. That's right. So, um, you know, it really for us has been about, uh, you know, kind of cobbling together resources where we can, networking mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But I think, the, I think the, the best thing we can do with what we have is to drum it into people that you cannot save everyone, you cannot help mm -hmm. everyone. And just because you wear a collar, I mean, you're not qualified to help yeah. everyone. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. um, but what you are qualified to do is help them to get help. Yes, mm -hmm. and support them. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what about, I mean, in traditional churches, don't a lot of the pastoral counselors go through pastoral counseling training? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so they, they can wear both hats because yeah. they've got that it's, training. Again, it's, it's cost money. Yeah, there, there's a program. Or in, in some cases, it, it's time. Like, you know, I work mm -hmm. at yeah. uh, sure. uh, Calgary's largest hospital, and they, they, have, uh, um, they have a CPE program. In there, like clinical pastoral yeah, yeah. education, it's just the the demands on it time wise combined yeah. with the demands on it for my job mm -hmm. and sure. is 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 huge. But thankfully, I have a very supportive uh, girlfriend who has actually volunteered, provided I can get the proper leave of absence to just say, okay, um, you'll be bill free for the period of this thing. Oh, wow. Go and do mm -hmm. it. So we're That's looking at doing that for, for next year. That's great. So, yeah. so oh, she's 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 awesome. Yeah. And she's awesome without ever having to show up to church. Yeah, great. <laughs> so you know, but uh, yeah, so I mean, we you know we try to do we try to do what we can. Mm. Right. Mm. Right. Good. Okay. So this is my last slide, and uh, you know we're we're in the serious stuff here, where you've got somebody who is you're worried about their safety and proper functioning and you may be worried about the safety of your other congregants 
and the this person may be quite disruptive to the group. Right? And so really we are here in a, you know, you're in a situation where you definitely will need to involve um, professionals. And I mean, therapists are a place to start, but neither Vivian or I, or I see people with really severe dysfunction. Um, we're not qualified to do that, uh, way beyond that. So, you know, here you go beyond your list of um, uh, supportive therapists, and you need to be aware of um, the high-level professional uh, healthcare professional stuff that's going on around you. Um, here in New South Wales, we have eleven, I think it is, um, areas, each of which is served by a mental health emergency team, um, and. You know, we can call on them for at any at any any time. Anybody can call on them at any time. And Trish will talk more about that tomorrow, I think, when she talks about suicide prevention. Um, but I think you need to have all this stuff uh, available to you so that when the poo hits the fan, you're not running around, amygdala's firing, not thinking properly. Uh, that you have the, the phone the phone numbers the phone numbers there. Um, and that's, you know, those are the types of people you need to be able to talk to. Um, psychiatrists, mm. medical psychotherapists, GPs are, are really good, right? Your local GPs. And very often, Tim, your local GP will have a, uh, access to therapists. How spiritually literate they're going to be or spiritually sympathetic they're going to be is another matter. But... Uh, it when you're talking about severe health. dysfunction, maybe the spiritual part of it goes on the Oh, side. yeah, yeah, yeah. For this yeah. stuff, yeah, for this stuff, definitely. Yeah. Forget that's a good call. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, those individuals will be, you know, trained enough to be able to sift through because, I mean, a lot of psychological crisis comes through in spiritual terms. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, I absolutely. mean, they're accustomed to dealing with it in ways that we might yeah. not be. Yeah. So, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, your, your thing about walking with the person is... Yeah. Um, really valuable there because the medical world may not probably will be not too good at addressing spiritual stuff. Well you can intercede a bit and, and also the other thing is chances are if they're coming to talk to me it might be precisely because they are intimidated by the medical world. Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. 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 Mm. yeah. So being an active or something. Yeah. Advocate. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Cheerleader. Mm. <laughs> um, this, this isn't exactly what you were addressing with your question but I'm looking at that list and I'm reflecting on my own experience over the last four or five years mm. and I think one of the things that we probably should as a church proactively do with seminarians early is kind of make it an assignment that they have to assemble a referral list with these categories of professional yeah, for their local area that's fantastic. Because we talk yeah. about, you know, refer, 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 don't think you can do everything yourself, but the reality of it is if you haven't got that list of phone numbers, then you can't effectively do that. You've got to know yeah. who to go to for. Who, who's your local GLBT mm. counselling service? Yeah. Not everybody yeah. knows. So it's about I prevention. I don't. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's about yeah. prevention. That's why yeah. thinking ahead and really having a list. Like I think what your assistant's doing sounds fabulous. And if that's that list is generated around and you actually break it down into the subcategories and get... You know, is this person yeah. mildly neurotic? You know, what would I need here? If not, like an ABC and what to do if you're concerned. Mm. I, I, I lucked yeah. out. I mean, the day, <laughs> it's good that Simon's here, because I mean, the day 
I was dealing with that case in Melbourne yeah. a couple of years ago. Simon was at my house when I got yeah. the first email in that sequence of emails. And so in terms of trying to help, he said, right, we need to find the emergency response team for the guy's local area. Where's that? Okay, and we find the right people and we got something to happen. But if Simon hadn't been there with that knowledge, I wouldn't have had any idea what to do because it's a whole other state. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. even if I'd had my local referral list, yeah. that wouldn't help me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and the, you know, there's also the thing that if the person is in a crisis, <coughs> if you can react to it calmly and go, oh yes, let me dig out my list and dig out the list like this is something you do every day, you're really going to help the, the person, you know, lower their fear. You know, they, they know, they probably know they're in trouble. You know, they're, they're feeling scared. And your ability to deal with it calmly and to deal with it as a matter of course let me just get my list. My, my freaking out isn't going to help anything. <laughs> That's right. It's not going to help them. Uh, it's not going to help you, and it'll likely, you know... It's going to help that Chloroform in our clerical kit bag. That's a good idea, too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Ether. You know. does, tell me, does this smell like chloroform? <laughs> 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 they may not be feeling scared if they're, you know, bipolar. Yes, they in may the not. Phase, they may, they're, yeah, like, yeah. they're convinced oh. that you know they're onto it. You yeah. know, they know that you know, God is speaking to them directly. Mm. And, but, yeah. yeah, but even there, you know, your calm, your oh, calm yeah. response to it. <laughs> Sorry, Will. Will be very <laughs> He's a special snowflake. <laughs> God speaks directly to me. Yeah. And you know the recommendation that you came up with there. Go to your local folks who do suicide prevention courses. They are invaluable. Mm. Yeah. They're really good. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Trish is more than having done just a course. She's doing, she works at Lifeline yeah, uh, regularly. But, you know, we've, we've both done... Uh, all, all three of us have done it, that's right. Uh, it's mm. a very, very good course. It's a great course. One of the most valuable things out of it was the card of yeah. the, the gazillion the phone list. numbers of... Mm. Yep. So just doing that one... Mm. Suicide awareness course had a, a whole list of, of these kinds these of things. like addiction counselors, GLBT yeah. counselors, whatever. Well, I think uh, I think perhaps when we get into the uh, uh, you know the pastoral assignment, like we usually make sure somebody has volunteer pastoral lo lo local work on the go mm -hmm. to get them used to in a, in a you know reasonably safe environment where they're interacting with people. We might just want to force it on them, stick it stick it in a you know stick them in in. You know, in uh, local courses that you know um, would probably teach them quite a bit yeah. without costing a whole ton. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the suicide course we did was it was a day and it was one hundred and twenty dollars. Yeah, something like that. That's what I remember. That's great. I mean, it was yeah. done by the. Wesley. Wesley Life Force. Wesley, yeah. It's at a Wesleyan church. You know, they're, they're they run what, what's called Lifeline here. So that people, it's a 24-7 hotline, so people can ring at all times, and I'm sure you'd have stuff like that in your yeah. country yeah. states. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, oh, thank you very much. That's it. Thank you so much. Yeah.